0: Well, church, we're going to continue our study of 1 Timothy this morning. Timothy, a letter being written by the Apostle Paul to his younger son in the faith, Timothy, who's at Ephesus. And Paul says to Timothy, he says, Timothy, I urge you to remain at Ephesus and to charge those, to instruct, to command those who are there to not teach anything that's contrary to the apostolic doctrine, to the scripture. So that's your charge. We're building the church. We're forming the church. we're, We're encouraging life in the church, and you build it around the authority of the Bible, the apostolic message. And then he says, and our end goal is that you would understand the stewardship of God, which is by faith. A steward is someone who is given the responsibility of that which ultimately is not their own. All of our life and our energy, our gifts, our time, are given to us by God. Our breath, we're taught to pray in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily breath. The very sustenance of our life is given to us by God. So, so God's desire is that we understand the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Now, as you think about faith, a lot of people say, well, a, I Want more faith. So, and you, some people look within. You, you look within yourself. and that's the bad, wrong place to look. Faith grows as you're exposed to the reality of Christ and His faithfulness. If you're exposed to Christ and His faithfulness, your trust in Him grows. Your adoration of Him grows. I was reading the thing about this as i was reading through the Gospel of Luke, and in Luke, uh, Luke 9, for example, the, Jesus is teaching 5,000 men plus women and children, and it's late in the day, and the disciples come to him in mass, and they say, teacher, you've got to tell these people to go home because it's getting late, and they need food, and so send them home. And Jesus says, no, we need to feed them. And They says, no, 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 you don't understand. There, there are 5,000 men here. Plus women and children, and we have five loaves and two fish. And Jesus says, Tell you what, tell them to sit down in groups of fifty. And so the disciples said, Okay, so they did. So all of a sudden Jesus turns and he gives them basket after basket after basket after basket of fish and bread. And then it was all said and done, they collected twelve baskets of leftovers. Can you imagine their faith growing? Encountering Jesus. And just a little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray with Peter and James and John. It's late. They're tired. They're weary. They're bone dead. And so so all of a sudden it says that Jesus' clothes became white like lightning or like the sun. And then two men come down from heaven, Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets in the Old Testament, talking to Jesus, the the one who's the fulfillment of all the promises of the Bible. And boy, the disciples are wide awake now. And so they're they're sitting there and all of a sudden Peter blesses heart who cannot not speak. Peter's like the guy that said, officer, I had the right to remain silent, but I couldn't help myself. You know, that type thing. Peter, who doesn't, who can't be says, says, Lord, let's build three tabernacles. One to Moses, one to Elijah, and one to you. And they were talking about Jesus going to Jerusalem and dying on the cross and rising from the dead and ascending to the right hand of God, the Father. And it says this, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice is spoken, Jesus was found to be alone. Now That's a faith-building experience getting the presence of Christ, seeing the glory of Christ. And then the next day, they go down the mountain and a man comes running out to meet Jesus and he says, Jesus, I have a son who all of his life has gone into fits. He falls to the ground. Uh, He falls into the fire. He falls here. He falls there. I wanted to be healed, but your disciples could not do anything for him. And Jesus says, bring him to me. As they bring the boy to him, the boy falls to the ground and he starts having some type of convulsion. And Jesus leans over and touches him and says, be healed. And he's healed. He's healed. Boom. The Bible says this, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And that's a faith-building exercise. When you get in the presence of Christ and you see Christ at work in your life and in the lives of those around you, and you see his majesty, that builds faith. So don't look outside. Or don't look within. Look outside. The stewardship of God, which is by faith. And then he says this. And and, and the goal of this stewardship, the goal of this charging you to stand by the apostolic doctrine, the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Love is the outpouring of all that you are to all that Christ is for you love. And, and this love has three components, a pure heart, a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. Purity of heart is to have a singleness of purpose in what you do. It's having a singleness of purpose toward God. It's having a desire to honor Him. Purity of heart comes from a couple of factors in the Bible. One example or one reason for purity of heart is in Psalm 51. In Psalm 51, it's a psalm penned by David in the aftermath of his adultery, of his complying with and orchestrating the murder of his lover's husband, the cover up, and the deceit before God and everybody else. And he's exposed. And then he pins this Psalm, this is what he says, verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all of my transgressions. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. That's it, clean heart, O God. A right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me, restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. As David looks at the devastation of his life, David says, a man reaps what he sows, and he says, when you go outside of the guardrails of God's protective word, when you go outside the guardrails of God's character, and you shake your fist in the face of God, you pay the price. And so he says, Lord, I I see devastation. I see that you reap what you sow. I see the sorrow, the heartbrokenness. I see the destruction in my own family. And I plead, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. So you see, one, one focus of the pure heart is God I see devastation, I don't want to go there. I see heartbreak, I don't want to go there. Another focus of the pure heart is found in the same concept in one of the last books of the New Testament, 1 John. In 1 John chapter 3, this is what the Bible says, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Christ. Beloved, we are God's children, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we do know this that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And then the conclusion. Therefore, everyone who has this hope fixed in Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. So, so Purity of heart, purity of life, singleness of purpose. When you see the glory of who we are in Christ, children of God, when you see the glory of what awaits us in heaven, we purify ourselves just as he is pure. When we realize, you realize that that we're in the land of the dying, going to the land of eternal life, that that the best is yet to be, that God is glorious and good, and He's prepared an eternity for us. You cry, "Oh God, let me see Christ and let me be like Him." That that's that's the singleness of heart and purpose. That that's what it means to be pure in heart. It means pure in heart. It means to pray the Lord's prayer. This is our Father who art in heaven. First request. Hallowed be your name. God, you get the glory. I want to be radically God-centered. Hallowed be your name, because when you get the glory, I get the joy. When you get the praise, I get the peace. Your kingdom come. God, bring your kingdom. So rule me by your word and by your spirit that I become like Christ, that the Satan is destroyed, the church is increased, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, bring in your kingdom with power, with might, because you're glorious and you're good. So that's, that's purity of heart. And then he says this, a pure heart and a, a good conscience, a good conscience. Now, your, your conscience is your reasoning, thinking mechanism that allows you to make valued judgments about what is right and what is wrong, what is best and what is not best. A conscience is developed in part by the culture. And there's a movie called Pinocchio. Pinocchio is a wooden toy. And an angel, a fairy godmother comes and hits Pinocchio and makes Pinocchio a little boy. And the last thing she says as she leaves is, Pinocchio, always let your conscience be your guide. And then... Jiminy Cricket is introduced. You know the talking cricket, and Jiminy Cricket says, "Whenever you stray from the straight and narrow, and you're going the wrong way, this is what you do. What do you do? Give a little whistle. I've never understood that, but that's beside the point. You you give a little whistle. (whistles) You know, give a little whistle, okay? And always let your conscience be your guide to say here." The problem with that is if your conscience is formed by the Word of God and by the community of God's people, that's a good statement. But if your conscience is formed by the ethos of the rampaging thought of the day, in this culture, you're bad. It's a bad place to be in many, many ways. We are, um, for example, in this culture... In case you listen to this tape in 30 years or whatever, this is October 2014. We are now celebrating as a culture and saying that some things are right that were not even spoken of 40 years ago, not even mentioned. I mean, behind closed doors, maybe. Now it's celebrated, it's a right. And listen, I I was alive in 1970. It wasn't a great time. We had leg warmers. No, come on. We had big hair. We had the Bee Gees. It was not a good time in many ways. But, but, uh, if, see, here's, just bear with me. There's a a book that's been released. It's a New York bestseller. It's called, uh, I think, The Balanced Mind by a neurosurgeon from McGill University. He just gets, he says, We live in an age of information overload. And he gives this stat. He says from 1986 to 2000. I think he says 11. It's 2011. From 1986 to 2011, we are bombarded with five times as much information in 2011 as we got in 1986. Just think about that. Five times, five times. So, so, so I say to myself, self, if if I'm going to be, all I have to do is just exist without intentionally pushing back. And I would just float down the stream of postmodernity that, that has no hand, no, no guardrails. That's just the way it is. So if, if you say, let your conscience be your guide, and you let the culture define your conscience, you're in trouble. You're in trouble. I just saw a headline this week about one of the Jenner girls. What's her name? I think I wrote it down. don't want to get it. Kendall Jenner, 16, 17, I don't know. Bruce Jenner's her daddy. She's a half sister or something to the Kardashians or something like that. What a, what a, what a, a, a horrid, d- discouraging landscape that is. You know, Bruce Jenner was an athlete. He was, the, he was a great Olympic athlete and then he got hung up with the Kardashians and just got emasculated. I mean, what a joke. And then you just, you look at her and you go, is this going to be another train wreck we see in slow motion in national media? It shows you on person after person after person after person. And it's just sad to me is tragic so uh, I, my conscience needs to be formed by the word of god and the community of god's people as i talk to people see the bible says in this book first timothy you can have a, a carterized or seared or dead conscience he says in chapter 4 verse 1 he says this the spirit especially says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, seared carterized, seared. They can't think well. And I can have a, a carterized conscience. I, I can believe lies. There's something called the Lake Wobegon effect. Garrison Keeler, Lake Wobegon. Wonderful NPR program years ago. See, Lake Wobegon is where all the... Women are strong, and the men are good-looking, and the children are above average, right? That's like, well, be There was a survey done among Americans that said, asked this question, are you above average in intelligence? And 63% said yes. Now, that's statistically impossible, okay? okay? The, the same question was asked of Canadians, and 70% Canada said yes. So, you know, too much ice hockey and curling. They just aren't thinking very well. But, but, but it's just easy to not think well, the Lake Wobegon effect. Church, I need the Word of God and the community of God's people to think well, to have a clear conscience, a good conscience. One of the greatest moments in the history of the church was in April of 15 and 21. There was a simple Bible-reading, Christ-honoring monk named Martin Luther. Here's a drawing, painting. Luther has his hand over his heart. And he's standing before the Holy Roman Emperor, Charles V, and many of the ecclesiastical heads of Europe, uh, realizing his life is in the balance. They, they put all of his writings before them on a table. You don't see it there, I don't think. And, and they said, Martin Luther, do you recant of what you have written? And Luther said, can I pray about it tonight? And they said, we'll give you one night. Because Luther knew that if he did not disown what he had written, that he might forfeit his life on the spot. So it was pretty high drama. And so he spent the night in prayer, and he came back the next day, and he said, I do not recant. I, I, I believe what I've written. I believe that you're saved by faith. By faith in Christ, not the church. I, I believe that popes and councils do err and they have erred and they will err, but God's word does not err. And then he said this one of the greatest statements in Christendom To sin against God's word or the conscience is neither safe nor sound. Here I stand. God help me. I can do nothing else. Here I stand. Boom. And really, the Reformation started. We're children of the Reformation. We love the gospel. But I just want to be honest with you. Now, if I had to have, if someone said, who's your, who are two or three people at your dinner, that you could, your, your imaginary dinner, Martin Luther would be one. I love Martin Luther. I love his spirit. I love his spontaneity. I love his sense of humor. I love his, his capacious mind. But there, there is a horrid chapter in Luther's life. Late in his life, Luther wrote some things that were crassly, horrendously anti-Semitic. Things like burn the homes of the Jews. Destroy their synagogues because they weren't believing the gospel. He thought they'd believe the gospel. Romans 9 through 11, they'd come rushing in, but they didn't believe. And he became angry. But the thing this was late in his life. People said, well, he had horrific digestive problems. He probably wasn't thinking well. Here's my problem my problem is that friends went to Luther and said, Luther, stop it. Quit. You're wrong. And he ran through every red light. And for that, I fought Martin Luther. Wonderful man, but, but that, that, that is a sordid chapter in his life. And, but I look at myself and I say, do I have people speaking truth to me? Do I, do, I have, do I have, have I given my spouse, my kids, my friends the ability, the right, the privilege, the past? Speak truth to me. Speak to me. How do you have a clear conscience, church, the Word of God in the community of God's people? And we need it desperately. That's what this whole book is about, the church. Officers in the church, taking care of people in the church, respecting people in the church, respecting those in leadership, caring for folks. That's what it's all about. A, a clear conscience. And then he says this, a sincere faith. Now, this is basic, but hear me. The validity of your faith is based upon the object of your faith. So, you can be sincere about something, but you're sincerely wrong. The validity of your faith is based upon the object of your faith. A couple of silly examples and a couple of tragic examples. I just read recently, about three months ago, about something that's going on in Manhattan among very wealthy people called Doga. Doga. Taking your dog to yoga. True story. They have these instructors and you bring your dog to yoga and the instructor says this way you stretch them out so they have good joints and live a long and a happy life. And they have all these dogs in there with, with Manhattan. I was a lot of money for a Doga. I would pay money to stand in the corner with my iPhone just to take some pictures. Now are they sincere? Yes. Are they kind of nutty? Yeah. Did you know that Christmas is just two weeks and 13, excuse me, two months and 13 days from now? So if you're looking for that wonderful stocking stuffer, there's a new protein bar that's just been released. That you can get it, I'm, it's a true story, you can get it on the web. Just YouTube it or whatever. Not YouTube. What do you do when you order stuff? Huh? Google. Google. Yeah, Google it. That's right. I'm not very trendy. I'm sorry. You Google it, but you can order these things. I, I, I did not. I might. It's a peanut butter and jelly protein bar, but if you look in the side, it's made with cricket flour. You say, what is that? Ground-up crickets. It's some peanut butter and honey with ground-up crickets, and they're selling these things, and people are buying them, the perfect stocking stuffer for your loved ones. I'm going, really? Now, if you're a nutritionist, you may say, really, crickets are good for you. I'm going to take it by faith, okay? I'm not going to go there. But that's, that's just silly. So you go from the silly to the very serious and very sad this is a man at a festival in Thailand, and all of those piercings are in his skin, jaws, cheeks, tongue, and he does this to ward off evil spirits. Now, you say to yourself, is he sincere? Believe me, you've got to be sincere to do that, but he's wrong. He's wrong. And This man is... Uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, that's his, uh, Nam uh, that's his alias, he is the leader of ISA, uh, 43 years old, he says he's the next great caliphate that will speak to all of the Sunni Muslims, Abu Bakr is the fa- one of the father-in-laws of Muhammad who was the chief advisor to the great prophet Muhammad And so he's leading this incredible movement in the Middle East. The New York Times says that they claim, and they say it could be true, to have $2 billion to wage war through seizing banks, through taxes, through selling precious items $2 billion. Uh, They have a guy in charge of their their Facebook and their Twitter accounts, who was raised in France, born in Syria, educated at Northeastern University in Boston, Massachusetts, with a degree in computer science, who is an honor student at Northeastern University, who now helps people put on their website the executions of people and the beheadings of people. Abu Abubakar... and ISA or the Islamic state, there are three ways of killing people, would be uh, beheadings, crucifixions and stoning people to death. Are they sincere? Absolutely. Are they wrong? Absolutely. Demented, horribly wrong. They feel they're doing the world a service by killing infidels. That's it. That's us. And so now all over the Middle East, they have any minority religion, including Shia, Muslims, Christians, of course, Kurds, are being forced out of their homes and in many places killed. So your, your sincerity is only as good as the object of your faith. And he says here, I want you to have a sincere faith. A faith that's focused upon Christ. A, a faith that is strong and resilient. A, a faith that, is, that is, can be examined by the Son. There's a sincere faith. So a pure heart, clear conscience, sincere faith. And then he says this. He says, some, some though, in the church. This happens in the church, he says. He says, some men though, by, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions or fruitless discussions or impure discussions. See, here's the process. Listen, it's very easy. You, you just kind of swerve. You get away from the teaching. You just kind of add a little bit to it or take a little bit from it and something that's more palatable or makes you more of a spokesman, you, 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 you swerve. You miss the mark. So let me just to swerve. And then you, you just wander. You don't gallop you just slip, 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 slip. And then what you're doing is vain discussions. It's fruitless talk. It happens when you get away from this. Swerve, wander, fruitless talk. He says, listen, the goal of this command, the goal of this charge, the goal of this stewardship is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Let's think about this, this, the components of love. And then, it, based upon faith, John Calvin said, faith is the, the settled knowledge of the benevolence of God poured out toward us, realized in the promises found only in Jesus, and sealed on our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit. You can't get better than that. Is the certain knowledge of God's benevolence toward us, based upon the promise found in Christ alone, sealed in our hearts and our minds by the Holy Spirit? That type of faith produces a love that's made up of a pure heart, and a clear conscience, and a sincere faith. And I got, I got to tell you, Church, one thing I thought about is that that love, love has to be expressed. You just have to love people. You just have to go the second mile because there's something in your heart that's just bubbling. And I can do my duty, I can do my duty, do my duty, do my duty, and I haven't really loved. I thought about this passage in Matthew chapter 26. Just listen. You know the story well. It says that when Jesus was at Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman, we don't know who she was, but a woman came up with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of what they were saying, said, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Now, I read that and I go, Love, I mean, what Jesus is saying here is love must be expressed. And here's a woman who sold what she had and bought an ointment and poured it on Jesus. It was expensive. And Christ praised her for it. Love must be expressed. And I thought, praying about that this week, thinking about it, and I was with somebody and. Uh, a young couple, had been married two years, and this—I was watching this couple had been married for several years, well, several decades—and this young couple, they were talking as they leave. The woman reached in her purse and said, "Here, please take this. It's a twenty-dollar bill." And these two young people—they have jobs; they can afford to go out and eat. And I was sitting there going, well, "This is this is interesting." And she says, "Here, just just just," she said, "Go to Chick Fil A on 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 us tonight. And you can buy a lot of chicken for twenty bucks, Chick Fil A. You know now, i got to tell you, my first thought was, they could afford that. Then I thought, what an extravagant, kind gesture. Love must be expressed. You just got to express it. And then I I kept thinking about that. And I remembered something I should not forget. When I was first married, I was in seminary. Sarah was in college. Not grade school. Some of you said grade school. She was in college, okay? And uh, I was, we were both students. We were poor. I mean, we were, just had nothing. I was a college pastor and a basketball referee and made nothing. And one week we had beans and rice. The next week, just beans. You know what I mean? You, a lot of you lived there. It's a good place to live when you first get married. And there's a guy in the finance community in our church who knew I was on staff at the church working with North Texas State University students and Texas Women's University students. And he knew what I made and he knew I didn't make anything. And so he walked to me one day and said, this is going to be above our tithe. We're going to send our wife and I will send you a check every month for you to use for how you want to use it. And they had three small girls. Every month for almost three years till I left, I got a $50 check from them. Every month. And it was gold. I mean, beans and rice and chicken. See, See love, love has to be expressed. No, I just say, church, uh, for, for me. I just confess to you, I, I do my duty, but do I really extravagantly love people? They go out of my way to love People. See, that's the outpouring. See, the the, the the end result of the apostolic message is a stewardship of faith that ends up in love, and love has three components pure heart, clear consciousness, and sincere faith, and it's gotta be expressed. That's what I'm saying. So we need to just love people, you know. So sweet. It's just the, the, the scripture is so good. So good. Okay. Well let's let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the day. It's just so good to worship, and it's so good to be with your people, and it's so good to sit down and open the Bible and to read it and think through it, and we just thank you. Um, Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you that you're good and glorious and kind. Uh, May your kingdom come in our lives. Lord, I, I just pray that we would love extravagantly. Just love. And as we do that, get the, get the honor, Lord Christ, and uh, just just work in our lives. Um, in Jesus' name.